One of the markers of a great suspense film or action thriller is the plot twist. You know it's coming, you're not sure what it's going to be, but the story as you know it is going to shift dramatically. In high school and college, my favorite television show was 24. Now, I'm not going to go into uh, great detail as to uh, what that show entailed, but essentially, 24 was 24 episodes, each marked by one hour of one particular day in the life of Jack Bauer, counterterrorist field agent. And over the course of each season, he was taking on the task of trying to foil out the plot of a terrorist attack against the United States. Now, in each season, you always knew that somebody who is supposed to be good is going to turn out to be working for the enemy. Plot twists are surprising because we've been set up to believe something to be true, and then we find that we have been hoodwinked. This literary device makes for a dramatic and entertaining experience. But can you imagine if your real-life, everyday experience was like that? It's a lot less entertaining when it's finding out that the friend that you confided in has been going behind your back, or finding out that your spouse has been unfaithful. So while it can make for an entertaining read or viewing experience, the reality is that we want the opposite of that in our relationships and experiences. We desire authenticity, genuine, real, character that is consistent, actions that line up with our words. This is one of the biggest challenges that faces the church today. People who claim to follow Jesus with their words, and yet their actions tell us a completely different story. Years after Jesus ascended into heaven, a network of house churches faced a similar crisis. Some of their closest friends and teachers had broken away, denied some of the core beliefs that had united them as churches. And now these false prophets were trying to pressure them to abandon their faith. Concerned, the disciple John wrote a letter. The book of 1 John is written to assure this group of believers of their faith and to remind them to remain loyal to what they had been taught. Now we are some 1,900 years later, and we face those similar pressures today. And we have a similar need. We want to know, what is authentic Christian faith? And what does it mean to live it out in an authentic way? Well, the image that is coming up on the screen here, you might find helpful as we talk a bit about the context of 1 John. Now, I recognize that it's a little challenging to read all of it, so it's just up there as a kind of general example. It comes from the Bible Project Online. If you're not familiar with it, I highly recommend that you check it out. If your hope is to spend more time studying the Bible this year and you don't know how to go about doing it, let me suggest that you check out the Bible Project Online. It is highly interactive. It does a great job of providing context and book overviews. It has great images and videos that tell the story of the Bible in a very creative way. Um, so if you're a visual learner, you can get an idea of the context of 1 John from this image. But if you're looking at the image and have no idea what it is communicating because you're not a visual learner or you simply can't read that tiny font, I will provide a bit of the backdrop for you on 1 John as we enter into this study. 
Manuscript evidence is unanimous that somebody named John wrote this letter, which is consistently labeled the first of his letters in titles found in ancient copies. But who is this John? For a number of reasons, John, the son of Zebedee, the disciple of Jesus and author of the fourth gospel, is the most likely candidate. The style and vocabulary of John's gospel and 1 John are so similar that a common author is extremely likely. This is particularly evident in the opening verses of the respective writings, which we aren't going to cover today. But the language of the gospel echoes across the entire letters of John. Second, major themes and emphases of the writings overlap. These include Christ's simultaneous full humanity and divinity, the close relationship between believing and obeying God's commandments, and the primacy of love as marking authentic knowledge of the true God through trust in Jesus. Early church leaders, such as Polycarp, of whom we have writings from in AD 100, presuppose or cite 1 John in his writings. This suggests a date of composition no later than the 90s AD. This dovetails with the testimony of church fathers that shortly before AD 67, the disciple John joined other Christians in departing from Jerusalem prior to the destruction of the city by the Roman Empire. John reportedly resumed his ministry in the vicinity of the great but highly idolatrous city of Ephesus, which we've studied recently here, in modern western Turkey. He likely wrote 1 John as an elder of the church in the last third of the first century, likely to churches in the surrounding region. This may have included towns like those mentioned alongside Ephesus in the opening, book, in the opening chapters of the book of Revelation. The churches in Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, which John also authored. So while 1 John lacks certain earmarks of a typical Greek letter, for example, he doesn't name himself at the outset, as the Apostle Paul always does, and the book is somewhat sermonic in tone, yet on several counts it is highly letter-like, as seen from expressed motive of shared joy in chapter 1, verse 4, the repeated, the repeated mentions of the act and purpose of writing this letter to his recipients, and the many instances of direct address to the readers. The rhetoric of 1 John is challenging. John rarely sustains a clear line of argument for more than a few lines or verses. It's not linear in its form as he wanders from subject to subject. But he does follow a pattern. After leaving a subject, he often returns to it. His style of thought has been termed circular, and he uses a literary technique of amplification as to highlight and emphasize various themes. This literary technique has also been turned symphonic in that he states themes, moves away from them, and then revisits them with variations, much like you would find in a full symphonic orchestration. So in 1 John, the author calls readers back to three basics of Christian life. True doctrine, obedient living, and fervent devotion. Throughout the next six weeks, we're going to highlight the major themes from 1 John. Honesty, obedience, love, purpose, identity, and confidence. And consider how we might better live out these qualities in a way that is an authentic expression of Christianity. 
So this morning, let us take a look at 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through chapter 2, verse 2. I'll read our text as a whole, and then we'll walk through the text verse by verse. And in it, we'll find some key characteristics of God, what it looks like to walk in fellowship with God, and we'll find a reminder that in Jesus, we have the hope of eternal fellowship with God. Hear now the word of the Lord. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write to you, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is the word of the Lord. Verse five says, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. God being described as light tells us several things about God's character. First, it tells us that God is a God of splendor and glory. Light in the midst of darkness can be something absolutely spectacular. In my time at Indiana University, a giant tower of light was built outside of the art museum, and it not only splashed beautiful color on the walls of the exterior of the building, but the tower also shone a bright white light shining straight into the sky that could be seen from miles away. It was nothing short of spectacular. If you haven't had a chance to drive by the new stadium on 94 for the Minnesota United, you are definitely missing out on something equally as spectacular. We drove past it on Christmas evening, and the structure lit up the night sky, and it looked amazing. If you need further evidence of the glory and splendor of light, take my two-year-old son on a drive during the Christmas season at night and it will be accompanied by a chorus of, whoa, baby, Christmas lights, and all the Christmas lights. There is just something so spectacular of light cutting through the darkness that shows us splendor and glory. The second thing that it tells us is that God is self-revealing. Light is seen. It illuminates the darkness around it. There is no hiding of light in the darkness because light pierces through the dark. So for God to be light, it tells us that God wishes to be seen and wishes to be known. It tells us of God's guidance. One of the greatest functions of light is that it helps us to navigate. We have headlights on our cars so we can safely see where we are going at night. And so to say that God is light is to say that he offers us guidance and direction. And finally, God is the revealer. Light reveals things that are otherwise hidden in the dark. 
Several weeks ago, I was getting ready for church and trying to not wake up Sarah as I often get up on Sunday mornings by 5 a.m. And it wasn't until I got to church, and actually it was a little later than that, I'm embarrassed to say, that I realized I was wearing two different pairs of socks and had different sets of shoes on my feet. Thankfully, both shoes were black and had box toes and not round or pointed. So from a distance, you couldn't really tell. But the fact remains that in the darkness, I was unaware of my mistake and it was brought to light when revealed in the light. Throughout, and so like light, God is the revealer of the truth. And so the imperfections of life are made known in the presence of God. Throughout the Bible, light is found as a metaphor to the life or salvation that God grants to those who trust in him. To live in the light is to live a life that reflects the character of God, whereas to walk in darkness would naturally be antithetical to walking in the light. In verses 6 and 7, John instructs the reader that true followers of Jesus need to be walking in the light. We read, If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. John is trying to counteract some of the false teaching in the early church that suggested that it didn't matter how you lived your life. There were people who claimed to be so specially intellectually and spiritually advanced that for them, sin didn't matter. And for them, the laws ceased to exist. But in these two verses, we see John reminding the church that our actions do indeed matter. He insists that in order to have fellowship with the God who is light, that one must walk in the light. Thus, if one is still walking in moral and ethical darkness, they cannot have that fellowship with God, and they cannot have that fellowship with fellow believers. Now, of course, that does not mean that we need to be perfect in order to have true fellowship with God. But it does mean that we need to recognize the sin in our lives matters. Second, he insists that those who continue to walk in darkness have the wrong understanding of truth. Truth is not only intellectual in this case, but truth is also moral. It's one thing to say, I like to live a healthy and active lifestyle, and it's another thing to actually go out and take on the discipline of eating well and being physically active. If I were to tell you that I like biking, but you found out that I didn't own a bicycle, you might begin to question whether or not my claim has any merit. And so John begins with an underlying principle for the whole paragraph, the nature of God. God is complete purity and holiness. In fact, John notes the same truth in the opposite in saying that in God there is no darkness at all. Otherwise, I said before, this is not a full treatment of a theological topic, but of the practical nature of our lives that flows from that truth. So John uses if-then statements to help us. He gives us more insight to those who left indicating their stances that they can live in darkness and have a right relationship with God. But to that, he says that we are lying and not practicing the truth. The lie is that you cannot have fellowship with the Father and live in and walk in and perpetuate in a sinful life. The truth is this. The gospel application to our lives is transformation. 
Those who are born again have their desires changed from the inside out. The key to this whole text is that they're living their lives different from their confession. If we walk in the light, fellowship with one another because Christ has forgiven sin and we join in fellowship with each other because of that truth. Hypocrisy can be illustrated by the way in which we clean the house when company is coming. We shove our junk in the closet, stuff it under the bed where it can't be seen. Out of sight, it doesn't exist, at least to our guests. It's not a horrible way to clean a house. We've done that on occasion. But it is a terrible way to deal with the spiritual junk in our lives. Hypocrisy is one of the main reasons given for unchurched people to stay away from the church. Many professing believers, churchgoers, leaders speak one way and live another. Clean the outside up for Sundays and live the rest of life dirty. Secondly, people don't want to be around inauthentic people. They're liars. Here's the truth. If you are living in continual hypocrisy, your, qu- your profession of faith needs to be examined. Now, this is not to claim that perfection can be achieved, but if we are called to follow Christ, if we are told to be obedient and to live like he lived, maybe we should be striving for that a little bit more. We're told to be obedient to the gospel. Jesus said to make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to observe or do all the things that I taught you. You and I cannot separate the way that we live day in and day out from the truth that good trees bear good fruit and that the gospel takes bad trees and makes them good. Does your life bear a witness to what you say you believe? With consistency, do you love your neighbor? With consistency, do you do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God? So then a question to ask this morning is, what is your confession? Verses 8 and 9, John writes, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. Here, John is speaking of self-deception. Again, those who had left the church were saying that they had no sin. They thought that they had no sins since this new revelation or since their split with John's church. The issue in these two verses is an internal one. Where is the truth related to an individual? They said they had no sin. John says, if this is your confession, the truth is not in you. Darkness hinders sight. It causes blindness to our imperfection. And so how do you think about your own sinfulness? Do you think that you're basically a good person? We like to justify the sin in our lives by comparing our depravity to others who do what is in our own sight far more heinous things than anything that you or I would do. But the reality is that day in and day out, even when I am trying to do everything right, I still miss the mark. And that's true for everybody in this room. But the question is, are you willing to confess your own sinfulness and continue to confess your own sinfulness? A contrite heart brings forgiveness and cleansing. 
These are completed action. These are public acknowledgments of sin and personal knowledge and conviction. True contrition and repentance is only known by you and by God. And if you do, or if you have, you are promised that God is a faithful God who will forgive and cleanse you. Finally, let's take a look at chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is a very succinct proclamation of the gospel in two verses. John here is reminding the readers of the hope that we have in Jesus. John says, we have an advocate. Right now, this moment, in the moment you sin, Jesus is there for us as our defense. One of the problems we run into is when we attempt to excuse our sins before God and we become our own advocate. When we mess up, we run to our own defense and tell him why we are not to blame. It's because of someone else or some other circumstance. Have you ever been in a disagreement with someone and you find yourself saying, I'm sorry you feel that way? Sometimes you actually are sorry, and sometimes you are placing the blame on that person. We often try to deflect blame even when we're attempting to apologize. But John reassures us, we have an advocate. Right now, this moment, in the moment you sin, Jesus is there as our defense, and he is the perfect defense and the only defense that we will ever need. So this morning and leading into this coming week, I want you to ask yourself the following questions. What is my confession? Do I believe that Jesus is my advocate? Do I believe that I don't have to defend myself before God? There is so much freedom in knowing that the one who lived a perfect life, who took on the sin of the entire world, when we acknowledge our faults and flaws, says that I already paid for that sin. Our text for this morning calls us to live an honest, authentic expression of the Christian faith. And so we do that by acknowledging what is our confession when it comes to our sin. Who is our defense? The other question, where am I walking? Where am I walking? Is my life consistent with my confession? Every day we are faced with the opportunity to choose to walk in light or to choose to walk in the darkness, to use words that give life or to use words that destruct. If your actions are not consistent with your confession, people will notice. Our actions, thoughts, and words give us a good idea as to whether or not we are living out an authentic expression of the Christian faith that we profess. So where are you walking? Let us pray. Almighty God, your word assures us, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
So God, as we go into our homes and our work this coming week, by the power and promise of your Holy Spirit, open our ears to hear what you are saying to us in the things that happen to us and in the people we meet. Open our eyes to see the needs of the people around us. Open our hands to do our work well, to help when help is needed. Open our lips to tell others the good news of Jesus and bring comfort, happiness, and laughter to other people. Open our minds to discover new truth about you and the world. Open our hearts to love you and our neighbors as you have loved us in Jesus. Amen.